Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you have called us here to learn more about how the gospel applies to our lives. And I pray that you will enlighten us, help each one of us, Lord, to understand more of your character and of how powerful and how loving and how wonderful you are. Lord, I pray that you will speak through me to every person here, that they may hear the things that they need to hear to be able to apply them to life, both their own lives and other people who they're ministering to. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen. All right. So today we're talking about turning wounds into scars. Now, I want you to think about that. That's kind of a, a picture that God has given to us of how he works to transform hearts and particularly in dealing with abuse issues, the turning wounds into scars. Sometimes wounds are just gashes. Sometimes they're festering and have been there for a long time and are very painful. In any case, whatever it is, God wants to turn our wounds into scars. All right, let's start out talking about what abuse really means. What is abuse and why is it so damaging? You know, chances are, in a group this size, there are several people here who debated, should I go to this seminar or not? I don't know, because I wouldn't really say I was abused. Yeah, some things didn't go so great when I was growing up, but I wouldn't call it abuse. You know, you don't really necessarily classify what you've gone through as abuse sometimes. Um, so I want to clarify what I'm talking about here. I'm not necessarily meaning if somebody beat you up continually or, you know, you went through all kinds of sexual assault and, you know, those kinds of, you know, that's not the only thing I'm talking about. Yes, that's abuse, but anything that warps our picture of the character of God by our interaction with others, especially significant other people in our lives, like parents or grandparents or teachers, people who are put in authority positions over us, those interactions can really damage people. And we may kind of discount them later on and say, oh, it's not that big, it was just this, you know, but... I would encourage you to take it seriously because until you admit that something wounded you, you can't find healing. You know, for me, there was a significant factor that happened when I was at summer camp. For one week, I was at summer camp with some boy that I never saw before that and I never saw him after that. But that whole week, he tormented me by calling me Chinese girl and chink girl and continually harassing me and getting all of his little friends from his cabin to pick on me. And it was all because when I was swimming, I came up from air. I came up for air coming up from under the water, and my eyes were closed, and I bumped into him. And so he went to all his friends and started telling them that I had tried to kiss him. And I mean, you know, it's, it's what 10-year-old boys do. But it traumatized me. Now, was I abused by him? I'm not going to say I was abused by him. But it certainly was painful to me, and it made me for many years hate my eyes. He'd say I had little pig eyes and things like that. And so forever I felt like I had these little tiny pig eyes, and nobody's going to like me, and I'm ugly. You know, people's words and attitudes toward us shouldn't damage us. We ought to believe that God loves us, and therefore we are lovable, that God sees us as of infinite worth, and therefore we are. But the reality is we go through a lot of trauma in life from relationships with other people. That's because God created us as relational beings. He created us in his image, right? God is a relational God because God is love, and love is a relational word. So God is a relational God, and he created us in his relational image as people who are impacted deeply by relationship with other people. So if something that you went through, you may discount it as, that was just something trivial, I'm not going to make a big deal out of it, I would encourage you 
to examine those things that keep coming back to you as something that bothers you. And not, not in order to blame somebody and say, that's the reason I have problems, it's that boy at summer camp. But instead to allow God to heal you, to allow God to combat the lies that were told to you by that situation. What that boy was telling me, the lies that were being told to me by the devil and by this boy in that situation, were that I was not of worth and that I was not beautiful, but more than that, that because I was not beautiful, I was not valuable. And, you know, whether or not you're beautiful doesn't really matter. The anorexic starves herself to death because she believes that she is fat, not because she actually is fat. So there's a level in which perception is reality. And abuse warps our perception, not only of God, but of everything under the sun. It warps our perception of ourselves. It warps our perception of others. And it's very damaging. So that's why the gospel has been given to us to heal us, not just to save us eternally, but even in this world to redeem us and rescue us from the damage that sin causes. You know, for example, I remember... um, as a child, and some of you may know, some of you, has, has anybody here listened to my testimony on Audioverse about being abused? Okay, a few people have. Um, basically, I went through a lot of different kinds of abuse growing up, but one of the most significant things was that my grandfather sexually abused me and raped me, and, and so I went through a lot for many years and never told anybody. When I was 10, he died, and no one found out about it. In fact, the memories were so traumatic that my mind repressed them, and so I had all these anxiety disorders, panic attacks, and deep depression, but I didn't know any reason why. Well, the reason why was because I was lying to myself. The Bible says God desires truth in the inward parts. But when we cannot cope with some of the intense emotional pain that we're dealing with, God allows us sometimes to not remember. And that's, that's a gift from God, in a sense, You know, how many of you have ever used a pressure cooker? Anybody ever used a pressure cooker? A pressure cooker has a valve, an emergency valve that will blow off if there's something, if there's something stuck. You know, if if the, if the pressure inside of the pressure cooker gets too much, the pressure valve, it starts going, letting the steam off. That keeps it from getting too much pressure inside. If something sticks in that pressure valve, it can eventually cause some serious damage, right? This pressure cooker has to blow up because of all the pressure inside of it. Um, I believe that God has given us sometimes a, a sort of emergency valve that the steam can blow out if there's something we cannot consciously process. If there's something that you've been through that you may not be capable of processing, you might not be able to feel it. For example, when someone loses a parent or a spouse, you may notice that they're dry-eyed, right? Now, some people just collapse and are able to feel all those emotions immediately. Other people cannot feel those emotions. They're just, I don't know, I'm in shock, right? That's sometimes a gift that God gives us to be able to cope, to be able to keep functioning for a while. So it's okay. There's nothing evil about going into shock and not being able to feel the feelings, just going through the motions, let me plan the funeral, let me get the person out of the burning car even though I'm burned myself, I can't even feel the burns. You know what I'm talking about? It's designed to protect us in emergencies. It's not designed to be a way of life. But some people make a way of life out of shock, out of denial, out of I refuse to feel those feelings. I just got an email last week from somebody who is going through that. She says, I don't know how to 
face the fact that because of all these abuses I've been through, I literally cannot feel anything emotionally. My emotions just shut off, both good emotions and bad emotions. I just kind of go along in neutral. Can't feel anything to make me very happy. Can't feel anything to make me feel devastated. It's a matter of survival sometimes for a person to live that way. And if you've been through severe abuse, you may find yourself going into that autopilot mode sometimes. Can't think about it, can't feel it, I just go on. Some people will call that, I just forgave and forgot. Well, you can tell whether you've really forgiven by the effects it has in your life. When a person truly forgives, they find healing and peace and freedom. When a person goes into denial and refuses to face and cope with those feelings, if you do that long term, it starts to cause problems. Ulcers, depression, anxiety issues, lots of major things that have been scientifically linked to repression or not being able to feel things that it's time to feel. If people, like for myself, I couldn't remember some of the things that had happened to me until I got to safe environment. When I was living in a safe environment and things were past and I developed a solid relationship with God, then when I was emotionally capable, one by one, God brought memories back to me so that I could process, I could forgive, I could heal, and find true freedom. So that's how God works in the mind. Now, when I say, what is abuse? I've given you a couple of examples of abuse and how it works. Sometimes parents force their children to live in denial. You know, it, a girl I talked to said, you know, recently that she came to her mom and said, you know, so-and-so family member is sexually abusing me. And the mom said, so what? You deal with it. I'm not going to take care of that. Unfortunately, there are a lot of families in which that happens, where the rule is don't talk, don't feel. And, you know, you read about that in alcoholic homes, but it happens in many different types of homes where there's specific, uh, particularly when there is addiction present. Alcoholism is one addiction, but there are so many. And anybody who is not committed to Christ is going to be addicted to something. You can have the sanctified addictions, like being a workaholic or a peopleaholic or a ministryaholic, but there's still addictions and there's still replacements for God. There's still idolatry and they're still very dangerous. God wants us to find healing and freedom in him. And that's why he wants to set us free from whatever has happened to us in the past. Now, why is abuse damaging? This morning we talked about how God's plan is to reveal his character to the universe. What would be Satan's plan specifically through abuse in the home? to destroy God's image, to make us unable to perceive that God is really who he says he is in his word. In other words, God says he accepts me the way I am, but my dad says I'm fat and ugly, and therefore I feel fat and ugly. And by implication, my dad is saying you are unacceptable, unlovable, unworthy because you are fat and ugly, right? Is it true that a person who is fat and ugly is unacceptable? Are they unlovable? We're priceless. We are made in the image of God. Jesus gave his blood for us. So it doesn't matter. It's really kind of irrelevant what we look like on the outside, but we live in a culture that abuses us. It bombards us with the idea that if you are not shaped like this, you have a nose that's bigger than this, your hair is like this, you are not beautiful and therefore you are not worthwhile. Those things can be very damaging to us. Part of what was damaging to me from my grandfather's abuse of me, I became self-conscious of my body. I hated my body. I felt like I was this huge buffalo. Okay, I've had three children now, 
So I probably, I think I've gained about five pounds per child. So back before I had children, even when I was a teenager, I was like 115 to 120 pounds usually. And, you know, so that's like 20 pounds less than what I am now. If you imagine me like that, I thought I was this huge buffalo of a girl, this big old clunky camel. I was so clumsy. I hated my body. I was just telling the girls that I'm staying with here, I had five cream-colored turtlenecks, size large. And every week when I did laundry, I had to wash all five of them because that's what I wore. And that's how I felt about my body. Big, ugly, shapeless thing. Hide it. Pretend like it's not there. I actually liked being in the conservative world where you can wear long skirts because then nobody could see my ugly legs. And they could still see my ugly big feet. And they could still see my ugly face, but at least I could hide under shapelessness. And it was truly surprising to me when many years later in my 20s I discovered that I actually was a size small. It never had occurred to me. I remember when I was 20 years old that uh, one day I was colportering. See, I was out there doing the Lord's work. I was on fire for Him. I was having devotions every day. But there was still a lot of healing that needed to happen in my heart. And one day when I was out colportering, I was thinking about how big and overly tall and ugly I was. And I thought, I wonder what size body would I like to have? What would be my ideal? So I started comparing myself to other people, which is, of course, a bad idea. But in this case, it was illuminating for me. I picked out this one girl, and I thought, that's about the height I wish I were. And that's about the weight I wish I were. And then, of course, I was curious, right? Just how much taller am I than the ideal? So I sort of nonchalantly went over and stood beside her and looked over. You know what? She was the same height I was. I can't even tell you how surprised I was. My perception of my body had been severely warped by what people had said to me, by what I had felt about myself, by the fact that having been through abuse, I wanted to become unattractive so maybe nobody would ever want to abuse me again. Even though I hadn't, these were not conscious processes. I will now think of myself as ugly so that no one will ever like me. That wasn't the way it worked. But abuse attacks our mind. It attacks our perception and makes us doubt that God made us in his image and makes us doubt that we can be worthwhile the way we are. So abuse can come in many different forms, and you might not think of what you've gone through as abuse, but you can know it by its fruits in your life. Just because somebody said something derogatory about your body one time and you took it too seriously, you might end up becoming anorexic. It's not because that person abused you necessarily. It's because your mind was too sensitive to what people thought of you and not sensitive enough to what God thought of you. But often that's rooted very deeply in what you've gone through as a child. In your family of origin, if you aren't valued, loved, taught that you're worthwhile, you may struggle all the time to break through that ceiling of really connecting deeply with God and believing that he loves you. Now, most of us are familiar with, when we think of abuse, we think of, what, somebody beating a child, right? There is physical abuse. I remember counseling with somebody whose father used to drag him out of bed if, if he started coughing in the night and beat him because he coughed and woke up his dad. How dare he cough and wake up his dad? There's spiritual abuse. I remember a, a girl I talked to whose father used to tell her that she was going to hell because she was overweight. 
and because she occasionally ate something that had a little bit of whey powder in it. I'm not even exaggerating. Is that abuse? That's absolutely abuse. He would also tell her that no man could ever possibly love her because she was so overweight. This is a girl who was maybe a size 12 or 14, and her father was over 300 pounds. Um, this, is, this is abuse, but she didn't think so. Good Adventist pastor, of course. He wouldn't be abusive, right? He was doing evangelism. What about emotional abuse? There, um, emotional abuse can take so many forms, and sometimes it's the most damaging form of abuse because people don't believe that it's damaging. Oh, come on, he just said something to you. Get over it. Instead of handing it over to God and accepting, Lord, this hurt me deeply. I need you to heal me so that I can forgive, so that I can move on and not allow myself to fester and to resent, to hate this person, and maybe even to classify all people like this person as evil, you know? All men are alike. All men do this. You know what I mean? That's prejudice. That's wrong. But it's very common when people have been abused and when they refuse to face that and hand it over to Jesus. Sexual abuse, of course, is very well known and becoming more and more well known. It has powerful effects. My counselor told me that sexual abuse can be so damaging because it strikes at the root of who you are. Because God made us male and female. Sexual abuse can terribly damage a person's view of themselves, especially. Um, but the bottom line is, all of these different categories of what I'm talking about, all kinds of abuse, any kind of abuse, the real problem with it is that it warps our understanding of God. It makes it more difficult for us to believe that God is love and to believe that we are worthwhile in his eyes. Now, when we struggle with these things, it's important to realize God has a plan even, even though families are very often damaging to their children, God has a plan for families. He did ordain the system of family. As much as it may be faulty, as much as your families may have hurt you in your life, that doesn't mean family is bad. God ordained that parents reflect his unconditional love to their children. We talked about this some this morning, right? And when parents misrepresent God, they warp children's sense of worth and lovability. What does that do to your perception of God? When God has designed this pattern by which you're supposed to understand what he's like based on what your parents are like, but then your parents aren't nice to you, what does that do to your perception of God? It disfigures it. It messes up your mind. It messes up your ability to believe that God is who he says he is in his word. This makes children perceive God as unloving in some way. And it causes a very strong temptation toward unbelief. When you can't believe that God is who he says he is, who can you trust? What can you trust? Well, I'll tell you what you'll naturally res resort to. Who are you going to trust? If you can't trust everybody else, you're going to trust yourself. And so unbelief starts that cycle into pride. I am somebody who's trustworthy. God is not good, right? If God loved me, he wouldn't have allowed my dad to beat me. He wouldn't have allowed my mom to abandon me. I prayed and prayed and still my grandpa died. You know, those kinds of things. People say, well, God isn't loving because if God was loving, he would have done what I wanted him to do. Therefore, they're tempted toward pride. The unbelief leads to, if I were God, I would do better than what God does, right? If I were God, I would be more loving than God is. Isn't that the implication there? We exalt ourselves. When we perceive God to be unloving or unfair, 
we exalt ourselves as the standard of right and wrong. And we talked about that some this morning, too. We have to learn to believe that God is who he says he is in his word. It's as simple as that. Either God is love and God is powerful, or we're in big trouble in this world, aren't we? Because there's no meaning to our suffering. There's nothing left under the sun. We might as well just go to our graves early, right? But fortunately, we have evidence of something much better, that God is love, that he created us for a purpose. Look at your body. Hold up your hand and just do this with your fingers. You extend your fingers. You contract them. That is a whole string of miracles. How can that be possibly a random mutation? You know, I, I joke with my kids sometimes. If we had evolved, I would still have a tail because mothers definitely need tails. <laughs> I could use another whole set of hands for sure. But you see, God has created us with a purpose. Our purpose is not to get happy, to get everything that we want, to be satisfied and fulfilled. Our purpose is to be transformed into the image of God. In other words, our purpose in this life is to prepare for eternal life, right? And whatever we go through in this world, as long as we respond to it in the right way, God will use it to transform us into his image and to show to the universe that he is love, he is fair, he is good. And ultimately, we'll be rewarded according to our works, according to the Bible. So love is meant to beget love. Love teaches us to love. When I pour out love on my children and tell them every day, I just love you so much, I can never get enough of you. You're the most amazing little blue-eyed boy in all the world. You're the most amazing little brown-eyed boy in all the world, because I have one of each, you know. Um, I'm teaching them that God loves them. When I sit down and play Candyland for the umpteenth time with them, or put together another puzzle with them, I'm teaching them that God wants to have time alone with them, quality time, that God is interested in what they're interested in. It's not a waste of time to parent. It sure feels like a waste of time sometimes, but you see, we are a grand waste of God's time, aren't we? What a grand waste of time and energy we are. We mess with him all the time. We're always causing him pain and heartache. He, the thing is, he knew ahead of time that we were going to cause him so much pain and heartache. If I knew ahead of time, if I get pregnant, this child is going to do these things. They're going to cause me grief. They're going to go into drugs. They're going to make the world a worse place, and they're going to be lost eternally. Would I want to have that child? Probably not. I can't imagine that I would want to sign up for a terrible life of anguish and pain with no good coming out of it. But God in his love knows that we are worth loving. Even if we don't respond to him in love, we're still worth loving. And so he pours himself out in love to us. God takes the ultimate risk. You know, for me, what if, what if on my wedding day I had found out the future? You know, the, the curtain is pulled back. I don't mean the future of what really happened. But suppose, suppose that in a hypothetical situation, on my wedding morning, I'm dressed in the beautiful white dress, and then I have a prophetic vision in which I see five years from now, your husband's going to be cheating on you. He's going to cause you so much heartache. He's never going to truly be a loving husband to you. And he's going to leave the church. He's going to drag your children out of the church. All these terrible things. What would I do? Would I want to go ahead and marry him? Could I walk down that aisle with joy in my heart and give myself to this man knowing what he's going to do to me? No, I can't imagine that I could. And yet God, knowing how most of us are going to betray him and savagely hurt his heart, he still pours out his love on us. Jesus loved Judas, knowing what Judas was going to do to him. 
And this is how God loves. This is how God pours himself out for us. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He doesn't just pick the ones who he knows are going to respond to his love and love those. He loves all of us. He pours himself out knowing that most of the time when he bears his heart and hands us a sword, we're going to stab him. This is how God works. And when we really believe the love that he has for us, it will transform the way that we live. Not only will it help us to live in vulnerable community with God, knowing I can trust you. I can pour myself out to you. I, like Abraham, can say, Lord, if you tell me to go slay my son as a burnt offering, I can do it. I can trust you. You see, it it enables us to live in vulnerable community with God, trusting him completely that he'll give only good gifts if we truly trust his love and his character. And then what happens in our relationships with others? When my husband is grumpy and doesn't do what I want, in a hypothetical situation, of course, assuming he could ever be grumpy. Um, If that happens, true love of God flowing into me will help me to see, hey, my goal in this relationship isn't just to get him to do what I want anyway, is it? My goal in this relationship is to be transformed into the image of Christ. And so I'm going to minister to him. And when I minister to him, not only is that the best way to bring conviction to his heart and to witness to him of the love of God, but it also transforms me into the image of Christ. This is how love works. God flows his love into us, and we flow his love into others. That's community. That's the beauty of how God designed relationships to work. Because remember, the law of God is twofold. Love God first, love your neighbor as yourself. So then, if you just love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but you don't love your neighbor as yourself, are you just fine? Is that okay with God? But you love him with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. What more could he ask? If all you do is love God, and it doesn't flow out into your love toward other people, you don't truly love God. The love of God, the law of God, is, is a cycle. The more you love God, the more you love others. The more you love others, the more you love God. It feeds off of itself. So how do we correct our misunderstandings of love? Every one of us has them, right? We've established all of us have come from faulty families. Every one of us is born to parents who are sinners. And because every parent has been a sinner... Every child's picture of God has been warped by their parents' sins, by their parents' mistakes. So all of us come into life with some baggage. We have our own misperceptions about the character of God, and many of them are fed by the way that our parents make mistakes. Where do we go to find healing? Who offers the balm in Gilead? God has promised to those who are abused When my father and my mother forsake me, then who will take me up? The Lord will take me up. I want to assure you, no matter what way your parents, your teachers, your grandparents, your siblings, anyone else may have mistreated you or caused you to doubt the character of God, God wants to mend that. He wants to heal those wounds. In every way that you may have longed for something growing up, God wants to satisfy that. You know, many people I've talked to, they say, well, it wasn't my dad was ever abusive. And I say, well, no, okay, fine. What did you long for from your dad? You know, I just used to wish that he would just go for a walk with me, just talk with me. I just wanted him to play a game of ball with me, just to enjoy me, laugh sometimes, have a joke with me, take me out for ice cream. 
What are these things? They're cries for community, aren't they? If only my father had delighted in me instead of just enduring me. But God wants to satisfy that, doesn't he? God wants that person to come to him and say, Lord, I feel that you don't delight in me. Because I'll guarantee you, a person like that is going to have a perception of God that says, you know, I'm trying really hard to please God and all that, and I, you know, I go to church every week, and I study my Bible every day even, but I feel like God is far away. He doesn't want to be involved personally in my life. Why? Because my parents weren't personally involved in my life. Therefore, God doesn't want to be personally involved in my life. If you ask that person, so does God personally want to be involved in your life, what are they going to say? Oh, of course. Yeah, I know God does because the Bible says so. But practically, how are they living? How do they feel? See, the gospel has to go from our heads to our hearts. God is always after the heart. You search the whole Bible, the text's on the heart. God is always after the heart. Even in the Old Testament, where people sometimes accuse God of being kind of hard-nosed and, you know, legalistic. Do the rules or I'm going to blast you. No, not at all. The Old Testament is crammed with examples where God says, Why will you die, O house of Israel? Turn to me. Give me your heart. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God has not changed. He was dealing with people in a limited situation in most of the Old Testament in which they didn't fully understand his love or his law. And so he had to give them some rules. He had to try to help them understand his character through a system of sacrifices that we don't have today. And those sacrifices sometimes led people to the temptation to think that God was kind of bloodthirsty. But nowadays, we have the opposite temptation. We kind of think that God is pretty tolerant. Yeah, I know. God loves me. My husband teaches religion at Southern Adventist University, some, you know. And he'll sometimes ask his students, so tell me about God. Write this, you know, write a little essay in which you tell me all about Jesus and who he is to you. Well, I tell you what we always get. Like virtually every single paper says the same thing. Jesus is always there for me, right? He's always there for me. That's the great thing about God. He's always there for me. Then they'll proceed to say, even though I know I'm not really doing what he wants, and even though I've been messing around a lot lately, and of course I haven't been going to church as much as I should, and I haven't been reading the Bible very much lately, and my boyfriend and I are kind of doing things we shouldn't, but the great thing about Jesus is he always loves me just the way I am, and he's always there for me when I'm ready to come back to him. That's a tragic relationship with God. God in the Old Testament tried to help people stay away from that extreme, and instead they would fall to the other extreme. Now, when we don't have a sacrificial system, people think of grace as pretty jolly cheap sometimes. doesn't matter. The great thing about God is he loves me just the way I am, and he accepts me just the way I am. I would propose that there's a balance, that God is a perfect balance of justice and mercy. Love is a perfect blend of justice and mercy. And it's because our misperceptions warp us into thinking God is one or the other too much that we tend to not really have a solid relationship with him. Some of us think God is all mercy. Yeah, he doesn't care. And sometimes we come from permissive households and sometimes we don't. But it's kind of if God is loving, he'll let me have what I want and do what I want. He won't get in the way of the person I want to date and the classes I want to take and the things I want to do with my life and the way I want to spend my money and my time and everything else. If God loves me, he'll let me have those things. Permissiveness. That's when they see God as too much mercy and not enough justice. Other people see God as too much justice and not enough mercy. God 
demands that I do everything the right way, and I feel so terrible if I eat something I know I shouldn't eat. I had somebody tell me how devastated she was that, you know, she had been exercising. Yes, she'd been exercising every day, but she hadn't been getting her heart rate up to the optimum. And she knew that God must be displeased with her because she hadn't had her heart rate at the level it was supposed to be for 20 minutes, and she knows that's what it's supposed to be every day. Can you imagine the struggle it was for her to love God? And this is a typical pattern. If a person sees God as all justice and no mercy, they see God as hard-nosed, demanding, overbearing. When they make a mistake, they feel crushed by the burden of shame. And then, of course, they have to make up for it by their own works, right? Here's a classic situation that I will see happen all the time. When a person has been abused, they typically crave intimacy, right? They crave longing, somebody, lo somebody to love them. And when they have that craving, they may go to, say, we'll call it an addictive relationship, all right? So they go to this addictive relationship, and when they come out the other side, okay, you know, I know I really shouldn't go spend time with this girl, but she makes me feel so great. So they go and hang out with the girl, and then they go a little farther than they should. So they come home, and they've got this crushing burden of guilt. Oh, no, I messed up. I knew I was going to mess up. God warned me, and I did it anyway. He must hate me, right? And then they have two different ways they can go. Well, I'm just going to escape now. I don't want to think about how I'm feeling right now, so they turn on the TV. Or maybe they open the refrigerator. Or maybe they call a friend. Escape to something else, because God is a God of overbearing justice, not somebody that they can come to for forgiveness, for mercy, for love. They see God as demanding and standing over them going, you always do this, don't you? I hate you. You're always doing this. So they see God that way, and of course, that's nothing to turn to for comfort, right? So they pull away from God further and escape into something else. Next thing you know, they're feeling, of course, even worse, right? The next morning they wake up, oh man, I ate that whole pint of ice cream. And I watched movies until midnight. Or maybe I went online and did something else addictive that I knew I shouldn't have done. They feel so terrible. Now, what are they going to do? Are they going to come back to God? They're going to crash. You're exactly right. Here they go. Now they're going to find something else. Either they're going to go, never mind, I might as well just go on Facebook all day long now instead of studying. Or maybe they'll go, today I'm going to be different. And they get up and they take a shower and they go and exercise vigorously and they make a list of all the things they're going to do this day. Half an hour by half an hour. I'm going to clean the kitchen. I'm going to scrub the floor. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to get everything done. I'm going to study all day long. Around about 5 o'clock. If you're a college student, you know what I'm talking about. Sunday afternoon, 5 o'clock, they're like, oh, man. I was going to get all this studying done, but then so-and-so called, and then I was hungry, and then I decided to make Indian food, and that took me so long, and now it's all a mess in the kitchen, and I better clean up the kitchen, and then, and then uh, I just feel so terrible. I think I'm just going to go see what's on TV. Right? These cycles, these cycles start not because we have addictive personalities, because some people say, I'm sorry, I just have an addictive personality. I can't get over it. It's the way I was born. No, we all are addicted. We're either addicted to Christ or we're addicted to self. And the solution comes in looking not to self but to Christ. When we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, everything else comes into balance. I swear to you, if there's one thing you take away from this seminar, take this away. If your eyes are on Jesus, everything else in life will come into perspective. Now, you've got to behold him the way he is, not the way you perceive him to be. 
But as you behold him in his word and through healthy human relationships, you will start seeing God as a God of love. You'll see him as who he really is instead of who you felt he is. And as you do that, he will become attractive to you. Am I saying that the porn addict ought to just go online and enjoy their addiction until they finally feel close to God and feel like coming to him? Not at all. What I'm saying, though, is that you'll never overcome your addiction by trying. You'll overcome by looking to Jesus, finding comfort in him, realizing he really is that good. He really is as good as the Bible says he is. And it all boils down to allowing the Lord to take us up. When someone else lets us down and they warp our perception of the character of God, it's harder for us to believe. It puts a temptation in front of us to believe that God is not loving. But was Jesus tempted in all points like as we are? Did he sin? No, there's no sin in being tempted. So if you're tempted to believe that God is far away, that God doesn't love you, just realize that's not a fact. It's how I feel. And I'm going to have to weigh up how I feel against what God says. In other words, God says he is loving. God says he is just. I feel like he's far away and he doesn't love me, but I know he is who he says he is in his word. And as you meditate on what the Bible says God is, you will find it to be true in your life. Sometimes I recommend to people that they go through the, the lies that they've struggled with in their past. You know, if you've been through depressions or if you've been through some of these negative cycles I'm talking about, you recognize it, you, could, you should probably have a pretty good idea of what the lies are the devil tells you. The ones that I used to hear regularly when I went down were, nobody loves you anyway. You never do anything right. You're a stupid idiot. These were the things that rang through my mind. I don't know what the, the things are that run, ring through your mind, but I guarantee the devil has some for you. He has some lies that he loves to feed you that are tailor-made for you, and when you're down, that's where you go because it's comfortable, it's safe. If you can just lash yourself enough, like Martin Luther, who used to beat himself to try to punish himself, we lash ourselves emotionally with the lies of the devil, trying to punish ourselves for what we've done wrong so that maybe we can earn our way back to God, right? Because he really can't be as good as he says he is, that he would just wash away those sins. That terrible mistake I made eating that pint of ice cream or doing something I knew I shouldn't do with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Somehow sexual sin especially seems to be defiling to us. We feel so cut off from God because the shame is so intense. And God wants to, to tell us that he is not who we feel he is. He is who he says he is in his word. Look at the, the story of Mary Magdalene. From what we know of her in the Bible, she almost definitely was a woman who was caught in sexual sin. She certainly was a woman who was known to be a great sinner. And there are some suspicious circumstances with her being living in Bethany but being called Mary of Magdala. And she's living with her brother and sister, but she's got a whole huge amount of money that came from somewhere that she can invest in putting expensive ointment on the feet of Jesus. There's something going on there. And it seems very likely that Mary Magdalene had kind of a spotty past, don't you think? And yet when Jesus was resurrected... Who did he see first? Mary Magdalene. If Mary Magdalene was, as we can likely suspect, a woman who had been involved in extensive sexual sin, isn't it amazing that she was the one who actually was closest to Jesus? Out of everybody else, all the disciples, Jesus keeps telling them, guys, I'm going to be crucified. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to be resurrected. And they're all like, well, that's really interesting. So anyway, let's go back to fighting about who's going to be the greatest. He says this to Mary Magdalene, and she goes, wow, he's going to die. And she anoints him with precious ointment. 
You see, there's something about the humility that comes from having recognized ourselves as sinners that makes us feel the need for a beautiful Savior. You see, when our fathers and our mothers and our friends and the people who are supposed to represent God to us, maybe our pastors, maybe our godly Christian teachers, when they fail us, when they misrepresent the character of God to us, the Lord will take us up. Psalm 27.10 is a promise you can hang your life on. However, the perceptions of God that you have are warped and are not according to what he says in his word. He wants to fix that. Don't get discouraged. Don't feel like there's no way that I can ever get over the way that I feel about myself. I would encourage you, look not to self, but to Christ. Sometimes the greatest damage that a person goes through when they're abused is if they do go to their parent and say, I've gone through this, and the parent either doesn't believe them or doesn't seem to care. But in those situations, you can know God is just. Often people feel that because God is not just, they have to be just. You see, sin breeds sin. When I believe wrongly that God is not fair, that God is not going to give somebody what they deserve, you know, say for my, my grandfather, for example, I felt like it was so unfair. He abused me. He got off scot-free, as far as I could tell. Never had an ounce of remorse. He died when I was 10. Nobody ever knew about it. He was never shamed publicly. Nothing ever happened. Here I was, 10 years later, as a 20-year-old, suffering from acute depression and anxiety. And I remember feeling very much like my grandfather's skeletal hand was coming out of the grave and holding on to me. Everywhere I went, I could never get away from his poisonous influence on my life. And I was so bitter. How unfair. God would let him sin against me, and then I, as a rape victim, get to live for the rest of my life, never being free, never being able to have a loving relationship with a man, never being able to get married or have children, because I would just get grossed out when I just saw a man pick up a little girl and carry her. I would just be, oh, that's just too awful. I'd feel this rage boiling up in me. I'd sometimes just cry. I didn't know why. I had all this pain, all this anger. Well, it boiled down to my misperception of the character of God, believe it or not. I know, am I starting to sound like that's the, the root of everything? Well, that's because it is. Because I felt this accusation against God in my heart. God wasn't fair. God lets me suffer the consequences of somebody else's sin. He got off scot-free. I live with the consequences of his sin for the rest of my life. How unfair. And I only found freedom when it dawned on me that this is really an absurd way to live, isn't it? Because I realized one day, here I am, so filled with anger and hate that I'm the one whose life is poisoned by somebody else's sin. Wasn't my fault. I didn't participate. I didn't have any way to get away. Nobody did anything to rescue me. I prayed and God didn't help me. How unfair. So here I was, as if I was going, God, you've been so unfair to me that I reject you. Satan, because of what you have done and how you took control of my grandfather's life and abused me and inspired him to do these terrible things, because of how awful you have been and the terrible effect you have had on my life, I'm now going to join your side and I'm going to fight against the Lord with all of my strength because I hate what you did to me so much, Satan. And that struck me as a really poor way to approach life. So I decided instead to pursue God with all of my heart that the way I would get even with the devil would be to allow God to have his fortress in my life. I, I couldn't make sense of what happened at first, 
but I knew that God has to be a God of love, and there must be some kind of justice in this. And then as time went by, I realized, wow, you know, God is just. Either my grandfather will be lost eternally, and he will be rewarded according to his work, so God will give him what he deserves, or maybe he repented at the last minute. Who knows? If he did repent, he's going to have to understand what he put me through, won't he? And I would hate to face that if I were him. I don't know how God does that exactly. If when a person is resurrected, they realize what they've done. If they spend a thousand years in heaven seeing the damage of their own life. I don't know how God does this. But I know that God is just. And that if God forgives my grandfather for what he's done, God has to help my grandfather understand just how evil sin is so that sin will never rise up in his life a second time. He has to suffer consequences in order to hate sin. So however God does that, God is fair. And just grasping that and believing it, believing in the justice of God set me free. Because you see, my, the root of my unforgiveness was not believing that God was fair. I thought, God isn't going to bring justice, so I'd better. I can't do anything to my grandfather. I thought about going out to the graveyard and digging up his bones and burning them. I did. But would that have solved anything? No. I thought about putting a sign on his, his tombstone. This guy is a child rapist. How's that going to accomplish anything? It really doesn't, does it? But I have a better plan. I turn him over to the vengeance of God because God hates sin and God purges it out of people's hearts. So either God will burn up my grandfather's sin and help him to find a deep repentance for what he did or God will burn him with his sin if he chose to cling to it and refuse to let it go no matter what. God knows. And finding refuge in the justice of God set me free. Now I can forgive. I can go, whew, so glad that I don't have to try to punish somebody who's already dead and I can't punish him anyway. I can let go. I can live joyfully. And that opened the door for me to be able to move on, to heal, to be able to get married and to have a wonderful relationship with my husband. I know in a group this size, there must be some people who have been sexually abused and the devil has told you that lie. You'll never be able to get married. You'll never be able to have a happy marriage. It's a lie. Those things have never affected my relationship with my husband. I praise God. He's been able to truly give beauty for ashes, to wipe away those terrible things that have happened and make the past truly be the past. But it only happens when you forgive, when you trust the justice of God and you trust the mercy of God instead of trying to become justice and mercy yourself in the place of God. Because when you try to take the place of God instead of just becoming like God, you're always in trouble. Now, we are wounded in relationships, and we are healed in them, too. The book God Attachment says, page 126. What does that mean? We are wounded in relationships, and we are healed in them, too. I've talked some about how to apply the Word of God to your life, and that's very important. You know, looking for the lies the devil has told you, and even finding <coughs> promises from the Bible that directly deal with those things. If you feel God doesn't love you, you find a promise that says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And you build your life on that. I had a friend who, when he was clawing his way out of an addiction, he used to write Bible promises on pieces of paper and put them in his shoes just to feel that consciousness, one more connection saying, I am connected with God. I do stand on his word. He will set me free. And praise God, God was able to deliver him because he sought God through his word. But another thing that's very healing to us is healing relationships with other people. You see, we are relational beings. Just like I said earlier, God is love, right? And love is a relational word. God is a relational God 
and we're made in his image. So what are we? We're relational, right. We're relational beings. We're designed to live like God in deep, authentic, living relationship with other creatures like us. And if we don't have that, there's something that we miss in understanding the character of God. Now, I don't mean that if you were ever taken away and put into solitary confinement in prison for your faith, that means you won't be able to live in real communion with God. It's not my point. But while we're living out here with other people, we must live in deep, meaningful relationships with them. Or else, we cheat ourselves and them out of understanding the character of God much more fully. You know, God has created us this way for a reason. You know, how many people do you know who have connected deeply with God without having loving relationships with anybody else first, just through reading the Bible. You find anybody like that who they just start reading the Bible and they discover a God of love. They never had a loving relationship with their father, their mother, their anybody else, and yet they find a loving relationship with God. That's very, very unlikely. It just doesn't happen very often. Maybe you have, okay, Doug Batchelor who found a Bible in a cave, but even he had experienced <laughs> love relationships in some ways, with his parents, he had people who had cared about him. You see, we learn about love through other people. I remember reading a wonderful story called I Dared to Call Him Father about a Muslim woman and her journey to Christ. And she discovered Christ. Initially, she was reading the Bible and she was struggling to find out what God was really like and not sure if the Bible was really inspired or not. And then she realized that God says he is a father. And all of a sudden, the floodgates of heaven opened for her because she had a deep and loving relationship with her own father. And that's why she called the book, I Dared to Call Him Father, because when she realized God is like my daddy, her heart was poured out to him in adoration. Wow, that's what God is like. Here she had grown up thinking of a God who was justice and had all these laws and regulations, but when she realized God was love, she fell in love with him instantly. You see, a relationship with God as a God of love grows largely out of a relationship with other people who are loving. Now, of course, that's inherently hazardous, isn't it? Because every other person around you who can potentially love you is also a sinner, right? We often tend to, if we don't have a deep and loving relationship with God, we tend to fasten onto some other person as our God. Now, you will be God for me. You will do what... I know God is supposed to do for me. Make me feel totally loved. Make me feel totally worthwhile. Most marriages, honestly, are based on that as their foundation. Now I've found somebody who will make me feel loved and worthwhile. And, of course, most marriages happen to fail. Um, even if they don't end in divorce, most people don't really achieve the kind of marriage that God intends for them to have, where two people are serving one another, ministering to one another, and growing continually into the image of Christ and teaching one another about the image of Christ. But it is inherently dangerous to build deep relationships with other people because other people betray us, right? They misunderstand us. They decide to use us. They lie to us. We believe that they're loving, and then we find out later on that they betray us. And Jesus, knowing that we were going to go through that, came down here and modeled what to do in those situations, didn't he? He had 12 disciples, didn't he? Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. And yet it's interesting that Jesus doesn't engage in self-protective relationships with these guys. He could have said when Judas came along, uh-uh, I'm not letting anybody like you into my inner circle. For that matter, he could have just had 
Mary Magdalene and Martha and Lazarus, who never really seemed to depart from Jesus. They stayed close friends. They stayed there with him all the way through his life. But Jesus seems to have had at least seven very close friends that he engaged in deep, authentic communion with, people who not only he ministered to, but who he depended on to minister back to him. He had his mother, didn't he? He had Peter, James, and John, who he cried out to and said, Hey, you guys, please, come and be with me. They betrayed him. They let him down. But still, he loved them and he depended on them. He had a relationship in which he depended on them instead of them always depending on him. Because Jesus was modeling for us the kind of authentic community that we need in order to live in healthy relationship with him. We need to have relationships in which we need other people and they need us. An eye-to-eye relationship, not just someone that's down below me that I help. Many people in ministry, they like to be safe. They like to have lots of people they minister to, but nobody who ministers to them because that's risky. You know, that requires vulnerability. That requires having somebody that might be able to come to you and say, you know, there's a way you're not acting like Jesus. So many people like to keep everybody down there, keep them all at arm's length. I'm strong for everybody. Nobody's strong for me. That's not wise. And Jesus didn't model that kind of relationship, did he? He modeled having people who were there for you. He had Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Peter, James, John, and his mother. Seven people that we know of who he engaged in deep relationship with, and he leaned upon them for support instead of always having them lean upon him for support. Now, if he, the God of the universe, leaned on relationships for support, I think that's a pretty strong evidence that we ought to, too, huh? We need to invest in people. We need to invest in deep, nurturing relationships sometimes because we'll need them. And not only will we need them in order to, when I'm going through a crisis, I have somebody to call who can pray with me. That's very important. I've discovered that in my own crisis. I need to have people I can call, and sometimes people who I can just call and say, I can't even tell you what's going on. Please just pray with me. And to have those friends there means so much. But I also need people who can confront me, who can say, Nicole, I notice that you seem to be doing this a lot, and it seems to me maybe you're being a workaholic. Maybe you're not being balanced. Maybe you're spending too much time ministering to people on the phone and not enough time playing games with your children. We need people like that too, don't we? Jesus didn't need people to rebuke him, although Peter thought that he was capable. Jesus didn't need mentors as an adult to teach him, although he did have that relationship with his mother and with Joseph, of course. But Jesus as an adult didn't need other people to rebuke him. We, however, do. We need other people to call us higher. And unless we have deep, vulnerable relationships with other people, we'll keep them all too far away for anybody to rebuke us. So Jesus modeled for us having this relationship with at least seven people that he had that he leaned on for support. And, you know, often in, in, in friendships, it's kind of a, you know, you have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find a prince kind of principle. <laughs> I don't mean that in husbands. Please, don't misunderstand me. Don't misquote me there. But what I'm talking about is in looking for quality, authentic relationships, sometimes you have to test a lot of waters. You have to try friendship with a lot of different people. Sometimes even with people that you wouldn't initially think, that's a person I connect with. Sometimes the people you think, that one's one I connect with, you later on find out that person isn't really the best person to connect with. Maybe they're going to be afraid to rebuke you when they see there's something wrong in your life. The people who are naturally attracted to aren't necessarily the people who are going to be able to be most useful in bringing us into the image of Christ better. Sometimes they're the people whose personalities are very different than ours, aren't they? But Jesus modeled for us having deep relationships with people who are very different than ourselves. 
and people who can help us to be transformed into the image of Christ by grinding off some of the ways that we're not like Jesus. So deep and nurturing and authentic relationships are sometimes abrasive. Sometimes they're painful, but they're healing because they bring us into the image of Christ more. Now, Jesus also had a group of, that second group of people that he was nurturing, right? His disciples, you might even argue that the 70 others were, you know. So Jesus had people he was ministering to that he was investing in purposefully. He had his inner circle, and he had his second circle of people that he was investing in. He was maybe raising them up, you might think, to become friends who would be in more of his inner circle. But they were people that he was primarily investing in. He wasn't leaning on them. They were leaning on him. But he was taking quality time to work on growing them into who they needed to be. These are people that you minister to. And it pays off. You know, discipleship is a wonderful ministry. If Jesus had seen that discipleship wasn't going to be a good investment of his time, he wouldn't have done it. But it is. Discipleship pays off big time, nurturing people one-on-one and helping them to become who they need to be. That's why God designed parenting, right? So our, our spouse relationship is that inner circle. And when you marry somebody, you promise to be in covenant relationship with them. Keep them in that inner circle with you till death do you part. Let them abrade you and cause you all kinds of pain, but you'll never sever relationship with them. You'll never sever community with them because you have covenanted before God. With your children, you covenant to have a relationship in which you minister to them. But your goal is ideally, of course, to raise them up to a point where someday they can be ministering alongside you, right? Maybe even to come to the point where they can say, Mom, I think you're working too hard. Dad, it seems to me like maybe you're not doing something the way that you should. Can I help you? You know, we want to raise our children up to be alongside us in ministry, to come into that inner circle. So you have your inner circle, your second circle, and then you have that third circle you might think of as Jesus had in his life. He had this huge circle of everybody who came in contact with him. Pharisees, Sadducees, crowd, people he healed, people he didn't necessarily spend time with. And Jesus was strategic in who he spent time with, you notice. He spent time on certain people. He invested in some of the people that really didn't look like they were going to shine no matter what you did to them. And some of the others that you might be surprised he didn't invest more in. Like the rich young ruler. He invited the rich young ruler to come into community with him, but he said there's a cost. He didn't say, just come and spend time with me, and over time you'll kind of realize you don't need all these riches. He said, uh-uh, you've got to choose between them. Then the demoniacs who said, please, Lord, let us go back with you right in the boat. He said, no, you guys stay here and minister to the people in your community. Jesus was strategic in who he chose to nurture, who he chose to disciple. And he didn't just pick the people who were convenient or who would really enjoy because some of them, frankly, were kind of difficult to deal with. God wants us to live in deep, authentic community. And if we don't, we cheat ourselves profoundly out of one of the best ways that we can learn about a relationship with God. You know, so often when people ask me, well, what am I supposed to do? How can I connect deeply with God? I say, well, what do you do when you want to get to know somebody? How do you spend time with them? Well, you know, I hang out with them, and I talk with them, and I listen to them. And Okay, well then, you know the principles of how to build a relationship. Don't tell me you don't know how to build a relationship with God. You do. You understand the same principles, and they, matter, they work the same way. If you want to build a relationship with God, you want to build a relationship with somebody you just met, you do it the same way. You spend quality time, and you communicate. You talk, and you listen, right? It's pretty basic. Relationships teach us about the love of God. 
So many times people who can't believe in God's love initially begin to believe in God's love because of the Bible worker or the pastor or the teacher who invests in them. And that gives them the courage to think maybe God is something like this person. If he is, that's somebody I could trust with my life. So you see, we are wounded in relationships. They hurt us. People are going to be one of your greatest sources of pain in life. But we're healed in them too because God created us relational beings. In the book, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, page 44, it says, you can't take the gospel seriously and not take your relationships seriously. Um, I'm even going to, we don't have a whole lot of time here, but I'm going to give you a few resources. I realize sometimes in presentations I don't give people enough books and resources where they can go and read something later on. And that's something pretty important because then all of you are going to write me bazillions of emails asking me what books to read, and that's not helpful. Um, uh, I will be referring you, by the way, to our website, heartthirst.com, where my husband and I are working on getting some books and resources that we recommend together on there. And I have done a whole seminar, um, one on when people are big and God is small, when relationships are too important to us, because we, we just touched on that briefly in talking about the dangers of being overconnected with people. And I also did a seminar that you can also find either on heartthirst.com, because there's resources where you have all of our different seminars in different categories. Um, But there's also an audio verse. The same seminars are in both places. Um, There's one that I did on authentic community, in which I talk about some of the things that I've been talking about right now. That one, um, I talked about, let me think. I can't remember the name of it right now. How terrible. (laughs) Anyway. You can find it under relationship kind of um, seminars. And uh, these helpful resources, these are some books that I would recommend to you to read if you want to look into more of how healing relationships can be. There's a book called The God Attachment, God Attachment by Tim Clinton and Joshua Straub. That, and now again, I'm not saying these books are all gospel truth and everything in there is going to be beautiful and pure and perfect. But I found them to be very helpful and illuminating in some of the science and other areas that research has been done extensively to understand how people are wounded in relationships and how they heal when they connect with God more deeply. Um, The book Relationships, A Mess Worth Making by Tim Lane and Paul Tripp is an excellent book written by two guys who didn't get along with each other but were working side by side in ministry. Great story and great book that really brings out the power of the gospel to help people not only to get along with each other, but much more to enrich one another in their relationship with God. The book Shame Interrupted is a new book written by Edward Welch, and he's a a powerful author where he, he really explains how shame works. You know, because guilt is a message from God that says, you've messed up, you've done something wrong, let's get it out of the way. There's sin between you and me. Let's get it out of the way so you and I can be close again. But shame is a different thing. Shame is a message from the devil that says you are bad. See the difference? Not just you've done something bad, but you are bad. And there's something about you yourself that's so inherently unlovable or worthless that God himself can't connect deeply with you. And when we have shame in our lives, it comes usually from abuse or some other kind of situation in which God's character has been profoundly distorted in our perceptions then we have a hard time believing that we are really lovable and worthwhile. And when we have that sense of not being loved and worthwhile, since God has put those two cravings into us in order to drive us to him, because only he can truly love us, right? Only he truly knows us, and only he can truly be the fountain of our worth. 
Well, what are we worth? We're worth the blood of the, the Son of God, aren't we? That is the fountain of where we have to find our worth. Instead of finding it in accomplishments or relationships or you know, clothing, anything else that we can find it in is going to be cheap and ultimately worthless. So this book, Shame Interrupted, talks about how to overcome that, how to find a deep connection with God and realize your worth in the light of the cross. Um, the book, The Wounded Heart, I cautiously recommend by Dan Allender because so far it's the best book I've found on healing from sexual abuse. It has some, some great concepts. I won't say everything in there is gospel truth, but I found it to be very helpful in my own journey. And I'll keep on looking for other resources, and we'll post things on our website at heartthirst.com. And the book Connecting, I also cautiously recommend. It's by Larry Crabb. Um, I think he takes it too far, honestly, but <laughs> he has a great point in the fact that we need to connect deeply with other people. He tells about how his own relationship with his son was very strained, and as a teenager, his son was still rebellious against him, against his, against his parents, and as well as against God, and it was only when his, when Larry Crabb, as a father, stopped demanding and started actually loving his son, that his son was suddenly drawn toward him as a father and eventually toward God as a father, too. So it's a powerful story and a powerful book that has some great concepts about how healing, a deep connection with other people can be. I caution because I don't want people to think that a codependent relationship is going to solve anything. This is the danger. Codependency is just another word for idolatry. The Bible calls it idolatry. It's putting a person in the place of God and often putting ourselves in the place of God. I will be the one who rescues you. I will be the one who makes you, you know, come out of your shell and become happy and loved. Ultimately, it never works because our focus is on self. But look not to self, but to Christ. And when we look to Christ and he is the center of our sense of being loved and worthwhile, relationships can be very powerful in helping to heal us. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the biblical principles of emotional healing. Physical healing, first of all, teaches us about emotional healing. What do I mean by that? Many of you are going to go back from here, and some of you are already thinking as you're talking, as you're listening to me, you're thinking of somebody you need to talk to. I wish so-and-so could hear this, right? How many of you have already thought that? I wish so-and-so could hear this. Well, they can when they go listen to it online later on. But these are some things that you can share with them. And when people start talking to you about their pain, you're going to find it puzzling sometimes. This blast of anguish and likely stuff you've never faced that they say, I went through this and I went through this and I feel so terrible and I feel so... And you're like, wow, I've never even felt that way. I don't know. This is something you can fall back on. Physical healing teaches us about emotional healing. Now, for example... If I, um, if I were to, let's see, I need a volunteer. You look like a willing volunteer. Hop up here for a second. I want you to imagine for a second. What's your name? Janelle. Janelle. All right. Janelle, you are my faithful volunteer. You're going to have a really easy job to do here. All you have to do is hold your hand like this. And then you're going to be the mean, bad person who has a knife in your hand. And you're going to slash my arm right here. Oh, man, she just slashed my arm. You see that? Blood gushing everywhere. Thank you. You've been so helpful. <laughs> I know it was rough, but somebody had to do it, right? So here I have my hypothetical terrible wound on my arm. She's wounded me. Whose sin was this, hers or mine? 
hers. She purposely has done something to hurt me. Who's got the wound here? Me. Who's hurting? Me. This isn't fair, is it? And life is so often unfair, it's discouraging. But what's going to really cause problems with this is not just having that wound. That, that wound will hurt for a little while, but as long as I treat it well, I bandage it, I keep some disinfectant on it, give me a week or two, I'll be fine, right? The body heals itself. What's going to cause a problem with that that becomes long-term? If I get an infection in this wound, I'm going to be in trouble. You know, I happen to have a scar right over here on the bottom of my right foot that you can't see because it's the size of a nail print. Poke right into my foot. But I was playing softball and I stepped on a nail, as in I ran up on a pile of lumber and I jumped down onto a board on the other side. I know I'm causing you guys physical pain telling you this story, huh? <laughs> I jumped down onto a board and bam, I jumped right onto a nail. It went right through my shoe and up into my foot. Ow! It was painful, I can assure you. And even worse, I couldn't get it off. Oh. But I could reach the softball, so I did. I reached the softball. I threw it back in the field, and then I managed to yank my foot off the nail. Now, that may be the only thing you really remember out of this seminar, but um, <laughs> I do have a point. Um, my foot was on the nail long enough to get a raging infection, which ended up being a bone infection. But over the course of the two days after that happened, guess what happened? My foot healed over so sweetly right over that nail wound. There was no puncture wound. You couldn't see anything. It was only a scar. It looked great. So when I told people, my foot is really hurting, do you think they believed me? They did not. And being a person who had gone through extensive abuse and had learned to just suck it up and bear with it, I continued going to work and going to school and doing everything else while I was limping until the pain was so unbearable that finally I went to the doctor and the doctor lanced the wound but he couldn't get all the infection out. He put me on oral antibiotics but the pills didn't seem to fix it and eventually I ran out of antibiotics and I was in severe, severe pain. I begged for a few days to go to the doctor and my, my father still regrets this I'm sure but at the time he said, no I'm not taking you to the doctor. We don't have insurance, and it's just going to cost a whole lot of money. Your foot's fine. So for days, I pleaded to go to the doctor, and finally, when I finished all the oral antibiotics, he said, all right, all right. I went to the doctor. The doctor took one look at me and said, you're going to lose that foot if you don't get into the hospital right away. So I went into the hospital, and I was on antibiotics by IV for a few days, and that got rid of most of the infection. I still had the infection in my foot for the next year until I managed to get appendicitis, which then when I went into the hospital for that, the antibiotics finally cured the infection in my foot and my foot no longer hurt. <laughs> that's, that's a complicated story that illustrates my point very well. Sometimes physical healing will give you all the principles you need for dealing with emotional healing. When somebody comes to you and says, I'm hurting so much from what my father did to me 15 years ago, you can know right away that this is not normal healing, is it? They have repressed it. Maybe it's kind of like that scar on the outside of my foot. It looked fine on the outside. There was no swelling. There had been a little bruise on the top of my foot where the nail hadn't quite come out, but because it hadn't come out the top, nobody believed that it was that deep, and I hadn't paid any attention, and I was trying to say, I'm fine, I can handle it, until I couldn't anymore. This is how people handle situations of abuse very often. So 15 years later, that person comes to you and says, 
I am just so angry. Or maybe they don't even say anything. You just notice that they blow up whenever some little thing happens. You go, okay, so there's actually something wrong there, isn't there? And with a little bit of probing, you find out, oh, so this is a situation that something happened to you when you were a kid, and you still have never gotten over it. You know, say my Chinese eyes thing. I was so sensitive about my eyes. Well, why? Because... I still had never been able to move on from my misperception, my warped perception on things. So when a person has this continual pain later on, you can count it as infection. There's an infection going on that's still festering all these years later. What does infection represent? It represents sin. So the problem is not that my dear friend Janelle over here slashed me in the arm and 15 years later I'm still hurting. The problem, if I'm still hurting 15 years later from that, is that I have allowed an infection to develop. In other words, I have sinned in response to her sin against me. When a person sins in response to the other person's sin, it may be something subtle like unbelief. God didn't look out for me, therefore I'm going to have to look out for myself. And they have this approach to life that's kind of like a cat that's backed into a corner with its claws out. Nobody mess with me, because nobody's going to look out for number one except me, and I'm going to look out for number one now. Is that the way that Jesus lived? No, it's not the way Jesus lived, and it's not the way that we're supposed to live either. It's a natural way to live. It's a natural way to respond to being sinned against, but it's an infection. It's not the way that God meant for us to live. When we don't believe in the character of God, when we don't believe that he is good or that he is loving or that he's going to take care of us, we set out to be God instead, to take care of ourselves, to make it all right. I'm going to do it because nobody else is going to do it for me. When that happens, we've got an infection. The way that you can help a person overcome that infection, or if you're the one who's struggling with pain from a long time ago yourself, you need to apply the word of God to that situation. You need to believe that God is who he says he is. You can build your ability to believe in God for who he is by having quality relationships with other people. And you can build it by looking for promises, by places in the Bible that God specifically deals with situations like this. And he will guide you to those places. Then you meditate on those. Don't just read it. You know, if I just slash this open again and slap a little antibiotic in there and walk away on my merry way, that's not going to fix it, especially when it's a deep-rooted infection. It's going to take time. It's going to take opening that wound over and over, cleaning out all the garbage and packing in antibiotic, doing something that's going to be a steady process of healing because healing is usually, as I'm putting here on point number two, healing is usually a process, not an event. If I break my leg... Are you going to come to me and say, I'm so sorry you broke your leg. You know, I've read that if you just pray really hard, your leg will be fine the next day. In fact, I'm going to pray over your leg. And if you have enough faith in my prayer, then your leg will be well immediately after this happens. Would you do that? Probably not. That's kind of a nonsensical way to approach it. Not that God can't heal a broken leg instantly, but he usually doesn't, does he? And the Bible says that... God does heal hearts, but it says he healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Psalm 147, verse 3. Now, let me ask you a question. Is binding up a process or an event? Is it one time, bam, Jesus touched a person and their wounds were bound up? Or did, did Jesus... It's a process. Jesus usually healed people. In the Old Testament specifically, you see, Jesus usually healed people by a process, not just an event. Now, when God heals the broken in heart and binds up their wounds, 
it's not just a process. It's a beautiful process because it's what trains our hearts to feel the need for God instead of just turning our backs on him and depending on ourselves instead. The gospel is all about healing hearts. It's about healing us from sin, right? Sin is transgression of the law. It's not believing in the law of love, not believing that God's character is what he says it is. All kinds of sin result from unbelief and pride. And unbelief and pride are the natural carnal responses to abuse or mistreatment from other people. Now I'm going to give you a break here. We need to have five minutes or so. Maybe we should take ten. What do you think? You need to take ten? Let's do ten because we don't have a whole lot of room in these bathrooms here and you may want to run around outside for a minute. And then we'll just try to go fast during the second half. All right?